0: You're listening to the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast coming to you from the heart of Honolulu. Hui Kala is a committed family of faith that loves Jesus and loves one another. Grab your Bible and prepare for preaching from the Word of God from Pastor Anthony King. This week's message is a continuation from last week's message, so this is actually part two. If you missed part one, you can always get caught up at our website, who we Uh Subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or the podcast app on your phone. Uh, you can also download our, our smartphone app to your phone or your tablet, either way, uh, and uh, get caught up that way, and so I would encourage you. Uh, if you missed last week, we covered a lot of ground last week, too. Uh, we're going to cover a lot more ground this week, uh, and then next week, we're moving on from this topic, and so uh, thanks for being here today. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we find ourselves. You turn your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing last year's series entitled Alive Together. We never made it through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. It was our goal to make it by the end of the year. We didn't make it. So we continue on through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. Just taking a look at one verse here today uh, and a a, a serious application of it and how do we uh, discern what the Bible has to say about the topic of alcohol. Uh, We'll take a look at that today. Before we jump into the message, I do wanna remind you that this month is the the, the reach month at Cala Baptist Church. Uh, I would encourage every single person to get time with another person for the sole purpose of sharing your faith. Oh, we make this really easy for you. On the back table, there's some books uh, written by my pastor in California called Paid in Full. It is a very, very brief gospel presentation it explains to people how they can know for sure when they die that they're going to heaven. The uh, most important thing you'll ever share with another person is the gospel message. This is an easy way for you to do that. So I want you to think about one person that you could set up an appointment with grab coffee with them invite them to your house grill burgers uh, take them out to lunch for the purpose of sharing your faith with them I just want to encourage you to do that Uh, grab one of our Easter Flyers Uh, not only will give them an invitation to our Easter services but also on the back is a a gospel presentation with verses from the Bible you can use it almost like a checklist to walk through with somebody uh, the the story of sharing your faith but here's the key Make time for it. This is the last week of of March Uh, this week. Hard to believe March is already over. Uh, We're cruising on to April. But four weeks from today, Easter Sunday. But think about how you can get time with one other person this week. Here's the goal. The goal is to simply present information. Uh, Whatever decision they choose to make, if they choose to accept Christ as Savior or reject him or need a little bit more time, that's not up to you. It is up to you just to present the facts to them. So share your faith with somebody this week. These books are on the back table. No cost to you. Uh, Now, mind you, these do cost something, but it's an investment in you and the people that you know to get the gospel to them. And so uh, take one of these if you'll get it to somebody this week. I'd encourage you if you say, I'm not really comfortable sharing my faith, read through this book yourself uh, and and jot down some notes as you go through about some things that you would want to share uh, as you share your faith with somebody. So highly encourage you, uh, grab one of those. This is uh, the last week of Reach Month here at Huey College Baptist Church. Make time for that uh, this week. Ephesians chapter five, uh, verse number 18 is where we're gonna be at this morning. Uh, and again, we have got a lot of ground to cover uh, through this passage of uh, through the topic of what we're covering today. Uh, again, week two, what the Bible has to say about alcohol. Ephesians chapter five, verse number 18. Actually, let's start in verse number um, 11. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Yeah. Verse number 11. Have no fellowship with the uh, Ephesians 5, 11. I don't fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it's a shame to even speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth it make manifest is light. Wherefore he that saith, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Verse 15, I would circle, I would star. underline that in your Bible. It says walk circumspectly, and and circumspectly is not a word that we use in our uh, vocabulary today, but it means to walk around taking full inventory of everything that's taking place around you. Uh, Just like the word circumference would mean a a circle, the word circumspect means watching all the way around uh, in a full range of motion of everything, uh, full field of vision of everything that's taking place around you. So be very aware of everything around you and don't walk as fools, but rather walk as those that are wise, verse 15. Verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Verse 17 challenges again, wherefore be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Verse number 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, here at Who We Call a Baptist Church, we come to passages of Scripture like this, uh, again, because we preach verse by verse, and sometimes we get to passages like this that could be deemed inflammatory. People might look at that and go, well, it's probably just best skip that because people differ on the way that they view alcohol and things like that. We don't believe that you get to skip any of the Bible. Uh, the Bible says all Scripture is given for us to help us uh, to be better Christians, and so whatever God wrote, it's there to help us uh, to know him better, to serve him to a greater degree. But here at Who we Call a Baptist Church, we don't wanna be known as the church for what we're against, but we wanna be known for what we're for. I don't know if you've ever been to a church before where they got a big laundry list of rules and things that they're against and things that they don't like, and uh, every single week, it seems like we're nitpicking at something else about uh, what we don't like and what we're not gonna do and how Christians shouldn't do this or do that. Uh, we can't afford to get caught up into that. We can't be known as the church that's against everything that comes along. Now, mind you, if we follow the Bible. We will be against a lot of things that this world has to offer, no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, we are not against everything in the world. There are several things that we are certainly for. First of all, we are for people. If you're here today at Hui It for the first time, thanks for joining us, we're delighted that you're here. We love the fact that you're with us today. We are all about people. It's my job as a pastor to help you find the greatest spiritual fruitfulness and the greatest joy that you will ever find in your entire life, and to find it through God's word. And I'm for you. Uh, I I wanna help you get there. Uh, And again, if this is just your first time, know this, you're amongst friends, you're here with family today. Uh, We're all on the same page together trying to get to where we're going. There's not a perfect person in this room. Uh, We are all deeply flawed, deeply broken individuals who have come to the one source that we know of for help, and that is Jesus Christ in the Bible. And so thanks for being here today. Uh, We are 100% for people. The next thing that you'll find that we're really big time into is we're really here about the gospel. We are for the gospel. Uh, The word gospel means good news. It's the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. The gospel drives everything that we do. The gospel is the greatest story ever told. It's great because of the, uh, not only the person who's involved, uh, Jesus Christ, but the ramifications of the story, the good things that come as a result of the story of the gospel. If you're not familiar with the gospel story, I'll sum it up for you very uh, briefly this morning. First of all, you have sinned against the holy God. I have sinned against the holy God. God's given us rules, guidelines, regulations in his word, and we have broken them. Not once or twice. Uh, it's not Our sin is not that thing we did one time when we were in high school or in college that we wish we could forget. Our sin is always with us. It's part of our nature. It's woven into our DNA. And sin is not something that I did one time in in high school. Uh, Sin is something that I did this week because we are sinful human beings. God created us uh, perfect, but we chose to sin and we chose to rebel against God. And because of that, all men have sinned. Romans chapter 5 tells us that. Because you've chosen to break God's law and because I've chosen to rebel against God, there are consequences for our sin. Uh, The Bible says the wages of sin is death because of my sin and because of your sin. We will all die one day, but that's not the bad part. Everybody knows that everybody's gonna die at some point and that no one lives forever. But the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. After we die, every single person in this room will stand before God and will be judged according to what we did with Jesus Christ. Really, this is the big deal. Because the Bible says, because of our sin and because we broke broken God's law, we're not only gonna die physically one day, but because of our sin, we will die eternally one day. That's bad news. Because when we die eternally, we're separated from God forever in a place called hell for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. I deserve to go to hell because of my sin. I I broke God's law. He said, here's the consequences. I'm guilty. I deserve to pay those consequences. And so I deserve hell. You deserve hell because we've broken God's law. But here's the good news about the gospel. God doesn't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to be separated from him. So he wanted to make a way for you to be forgiven of your sin. He wanted to make a way for me to fix all the broken things that I've done in my entire life. And the way that he made was through Jesus. Romans chapter five, verse number eight says, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I deserve to die. I know that. I deserve to be punished for my sin. I know that. But Jesus, because of his love for me, came and died in my place. And Jesus took upon him my sin and he was put to death. He endured God's punishment. He endured the wrath of God on the cross because of his love for me. And Jesus Christ has now made payment for all those who had put their faith in him. So he says, if anyone will come to me, I'm going no know gonna cast them out. I'll receive them in. I'll pay for their sin. Regardless of what they've done, regardless of the mistakes that they've made, I'm gonna make everything right because of what Jesus has done. But you've gotta make that decision for yourself. I can't make it for you. There is no blanket forgiveness uh, that's given. Just because you walked in the door of our church means nothing to God in terms of where you spend eternity your church membership, your baptism, uh, your, your family pedigree. Those things mean nothing to God when it comes to your eternal destination. You see, you must choose Jesus Christ. You must say, I realize that I've broken God's law. I realize that I've sinned against God and I'm turning from that today and turning to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says if you do that, you will be saved or born again. Beautiful words that we find in the Bible that if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we can be saved. That is Romans chapter 10 for you. Jesus says in John chapter three, verse number three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So you have to be saved or born again to go to heaven. Jesus himself said that. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, should not die, but have everlasting life. And and friend, that's the message that we're for. If you walk out of today's service and, oh, that church is just against alcohol, that church is against drinking, you miss the whole point of what this church stands for. This church stands for the gospel. And the gospel changes everything. That's why we wanna be known as the church of what we're for. We're for people, we're for the gospel message. That's what we're for. But at the same time, we're a church that's for holiness as well. Now, the word holiness sometimes gets a bad rap in in churches. Again, you've probably met somebody before. that Someone has said, oh, that person thinks they're holier than thou. They think they're better than everyone else. Uh, That's a bad connotation of the word holy. But the Bible tells us that God is holy, and because God is holy, that we should also be holy. Now, again, we have to understand what the word holy means. The word holy means separate from anything to do with sin. So if sin is over here, I'm going to be over here. That's what holiness is. Holiness is not sin is over here and I'm gonna see how close I can get to my sin without falling over the edge. We would call that worldliness. Worldliness wants to chase after sin. Holiness wants to be separate from sin. This is why God cannot allow you into heaven with your sin. If your sin is still upon you and you uh, get to God's presence, God's gonna say, get out of here with your sin. I can't be close to it because God is holy. He's separate from sin. And you and I have been called to uh, live a distinctly Christian life as well, to be separate from sin as well. Last week, we took a look look at a lot of different passages of scripture uh, about what the Bible has to say about alcohol. And I think when it comes to alcohol, we need to have a a holiness viewpoint on alcohol and how we look at it in light of scripture. Uh, Last week, we took a look at how the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. We took a look at how in the Proverbs it says the, the people who spend too much time with alcohol have wounds without cause. They have bruises and redness of eyes and they don't know uh, where they, they were. They say things that they didn't mean to see and they, say, and they utter perverse words as a result of it. The Bible tells us not to even look on wine when it moves itself aright in the cup because when we drink it, we're deceived and in the end it stings like a snake. The Bible cautions us against that. And so you and I need to walk circumspectly when it comes to the subject of alcohol. We need to look around at the totality of the subject. We need to step back and look and say, is this wise, is this unwise for Christians as we look at it? In this passage here, it tells us uh, without clear guidelines, and I think there wouldn't be a person in this room that would disagree with this statement. Uh, It says, be not drunk with wine, period. Drunkenness is always associated with sinfulness in the Bible without fail. And I've don't. i I've never met another Christian that would argue with the fact that the Bible commands against drunkenness. Uh, the Bible warns against it in multiple passages of scripture, many of which we took a look at last week. Drunkenness is always associated for, for, with sinfulness. And it, again, I've never met a Christian that would disagree with that statement. But then the question comes, at what point does one become drunk? Where is that line then? Where we pass from, Some might say enjoying a blessing that God has given us to drunkenness. Where is that line? And I can say this, again, I'll give full disclosure here this morning for those that weren't here last week. I've never drank a drop of alcohol in my life, never have, not one single solitary time. Um, There was a period of time in my life where I saw the negative effects of alcohol and I didn't wanna be a part of it But then as I matured in my faith and I grew in my faith, I I grew a biblical conviction and developed a biblical conviction based on the totality of scripture that I believe that for Christians it is unwise to drink alcohol. I'll even go so far as to say this statement. I feel like it's, I feel again, this is not my opinion. I believe based on scripture, I can say and can defend from the Bible that drinking alcohol is always unwise for Christians and in many cases, sinful for Christians. You look at that and you go, I just don't agree with that. Again, I'm not sharing with you my opinion because I know you don't care about my opinion. And truthfully, your opinion doesn't really matter a lot to me. I just want to know what does the Bible say. I think the Bible is very clear when it comes to the the subject of alcohol, of how we should walk in wisdom with this. I met a guy a couple of years ago at the gym, and uh, we'd gone to an event that our gym had put on, and there was some alcohol use and things like that, and we separated ourselves from the folks that were drinking. He came over and he says, hey, so you haven't gotten a beer yet. Do you want one? I said, no, I don't drink. And he goes, oh, are you in recovery? I go, no, just never drank alcohol my entire life. He goes, wow, that's so weird. Okay. And he says, uh, don't you, don't you want to have fun with everybody else? I said, I'm having a great time without it. And he sat there for a minute and he says, I wish I could do that. I said, do what? He said, I wish I could have a good time without alcohol. I just don't see that it's possible. And I, and I thought to myself, how terrible of a life that one would have to live where I need to have alcohol to have a good time. I've met Christians before who say, hey, you know what, uh, having a drink when I get home from work is just my way that I unwind. Uh, I, I need it every day to just kind of relax a little bit. And again, I would caution you that if you need alcohol to relax, you put your, your, your focus and your priorities in the wrong place. Be careful with that. But the question comes then, at what point does one become drunk? Would we say uh, if one can blow a .08 on a breathalyzer, that that would constitute drunkenness? Would it be when our judgment is impaired or our inhibitions are lowered or when we begin to say things we wouldn't normally say? Even the the world would say that there's a spectrum on on which one it would be drunk. Have you even heard people say before, well, he was drunk, but not really drunk. He was drunk, but not that kind of drunk. Or you say, they were stupid drunk. They were falling down drunk. They were blacked out drunk. Even the world would say that there's a spectrum for drunkenness. And the question is, at what point does one become drunk? And I want to caution you as a Christian, if the line for sinfulness is here, let's not ask how close we can get to the line without going over. Let's ask how far away we can get from the line and portray Christ to people. Dating couples will sometimes ask me, they'll say, well, what can we do physically before we cross the line into sinfulness? In other words, they're asking, is it okay for us to make out? Is it okay for us to uh, put our hands uh, under each other's clothes and yet not actually have sexual intercourse? And is that okay? That's a terrible question to ask. Not how close can I get to the line without sinning. How far can I stay from the line to portray Christ? And I, I often tell people, I believe Paul's very, very clear as he writes in 1 Corinthians, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. You say, so like, don't touch? Yeah, I think it's a really good guideline to follow. Because God created the human body That touch always leads to more touch. God just created us that way. I remember uh, my wife and I, when we were dating, uh, it was probably our second or third date that we were on. We were sitting in a restaurant. We were having dinner together. And uh, I had, have you ever sat at a table with somebody and you think you're kicking the table leg, which you're actually kicking somebody else's leg? (laughs) That was me. But I wasn't kicking the the, the table leg. I was actually rubbing the edge of my foot along what I thought was the table leg. And she looked at me, and she goes, what are you doing? And I go, what? And she goes, that's my leg. And I, and I looked at her, there, sure enough, it was her leg. And I go, oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was the table leg. But then I thought to myself, like, wow, I've been rubbing her leg all this time, and she just now said something. <laughs> wow, what does that mean, you know? And I began to have all kinds of thoughts race through my head. <clears throat> hey, it's good if I just don't touch. Again, uh, I, I try to tell my, my, my kids, if it would be inappropriate for me to do to another woman that's not your mom, it would probably be inappropriate for you. Sitting in uh, church with your hand on the inside of her thigh, if I was doing that to another woman that wasn't your mom, wouldn't that be incredibly awkward? Sure it would. You know why? Because she's not my wife. Kind of a good line to follow. And again, well, uh, we're not actually having sex. Again, it's not a matter of how close can we get to the line without going over to how far can we get from the line to portray Christ. There's a spectrum. And again, in this passage of scripture, being drunk and being spirit-filled are at opposite ends of the spectrum. If you read through the the context of Ephesians chapter five, it's all about distinction. You used to live this way and you don't anymore. You used to walk in darkness, now you walk in the light. You used to be drunk, now you're spirit-filled. They're opposite ends of the spectrum. And so I would go so far as to interpret this scripture. And again, if you disagree with my interpretation of the scripture, I'm okay with that. I just wanna tell you how I view this. I view this as being filled with the Spirit is on this end, being drunk with wine is on this end, and it's a spectrum that the closer I get to becoming drunk, the less Spirit-filled that I am. And again, the question is, at what point does one become drunk? Again, I've never drank a drop of alcohol in my life, so I can't tell you at what point I would become drunk. You know how you would find that out? To begin to drink. If I began to drink, I could tell you, hey, I can handle three or four beers, but after that, I'm toast. I don't know that because I've never drank alcohol before. And the only way to know one's limitations is to begin to find out how close we can get to that line. And I don't want to get close to sin and not go over. I want to be as far from sin as possible. And so again, I would caution you against this. I've met uh, folks before who say, I can have a glass of wine and I, I, don't, feel, uh, I don't feel anything at all. I don't, I'm not drunk at all, I can have one glass of wine and I'm okay, it just relaxes me. If you are relaxed, it has now began to affect your central nervous system. <clears throat> and again, we've all seen drunk driving campaigns that say buzz dr- driving is the same as drunk driving. Even police officers will tell you that your, your judgment, your reaction time, your response time is automatically inhibited after one drink of alcohol. So again, as Christians, we can't look at this and be so foolish to say, well, I can have a drink and not become drunk. The question is, at what point does one become drunk? And again, I don't wanna try to get close to the line as possible and not go over. I will admit to you this morning, I'm gonna be honest with you. Nowhere in the Bible is drinking alcohol expressly prohibited. You'll never find in a single verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not drink or uh, drinking alcohol is a sin for Christians. I wish it were spelled out that way, but it's not. And so you might look at that and you go, well, there you go. It's kind of open to interpretation, wouldn't you say? Did you know that there are other things in the Bible that aren't explicitly spelled out, but we would just agree that they're probably not best for Christians? Can you show me a single, and this is where I get into, to, um, disagreement's not the right word, uh, heated conversations with other Christians. They say, just show me one verse in the Bible where it says you can't drink alcohol. Just show me one. And I tell you, I can't. I can't show you one, but I can show you 12 that point to the idea that it's probably not best for Christians. Well, just show me one. You can't show me one verse, right? I can't show you one verse in the Bible. This is going to blow your mind because I looked this week. I can't show you one verse in the Bible that expressly forbids polygamy. Multiple wives. I can't. There's not a verse in the Bible that says you can't, can't do it. I looked. you go, some of you are looking around going, did he really just say it? I said it. There's not a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt have one wife. And you go, well, doesn't one man, one wife, one lifetime? No, that's what we gather from the totality of Scripture, but it's never actually spelled out just like that. And again, if I wanted to be like some Christians in their defense of alcohol, I could say there are good men in the Bible that had multiple wives. You take David. David was a man after God's own heart, and God never condemned him for having multiple wives. So it must be okay for Christians to have multiple wives, right? No, Because if you look at God's original plan, and again, I go back to the totality of Scripture in the book of Genesis, one man and one woman was created as the first union for marriage. And Jesus himself says, well, God has joined together, let no man put asunder. There was kind of a binding contract for, for all of, of the rest of this, these people's lives. So we look at that and we say, there's nothing in the Bible that expressly forbids, but I think we would all agree it's just not a good idea because of the totality of Scripture. Did you know the Bible never expressly forbids slavery? Think about that for a while. Thou shalt not have slaves. Not a verse in the Bible about it, but I think with the totality of Scripture, and again, based on what we know in society today, we could all agree, definitely not a good idea for Christians to have slaves. Again, it's not a matter of, can I find one verse that expressly forbids this? I must look at the totality of Scripture and walk in wisdom. Now, We're gonna take a look at the first part of this. Last week, we took a look at the historical view of alcohol. Uh, The alcohol that we find in the Bible is not the same as the alcohol that we have today. Uh, The alcoholic content was incredibly much lower. Also, the word wine does not always mean alcoholic wine. Uh, there was unfermented wine. There was freshly squeezed, squeezed grape juice that they would call uh, wine in the Bible. I uh, gave you uh, six different reasons why I believe based on the totality of Scripture that Jesus did not make an alcoholic drink in John chapter two when he he made turned water into wine uh, at the wedding ceremony in Cana. I believe that's irrefutable from when it comes to Scripture that Jesus did not serve an alcoholic beverage uh, for that. But... We took a look at the historical view of it. We took a look at the biblical view of it, about 20 different verses that talk about alcohol use and drunkenness and why uh, it always portrays it in a negative light. But today we're gonna take a look at, first of all, just the practical view of it. Let's just say, let's just assume for a second the Bible says nothing about alcohol use, nothing. It's completely and totally silent. How do we make our determination as Christians based on that then? This has become more recently a, a series of debate as well Uh, Again, we have to look at the practical aspect. And again, at the end, we're gonna take a look at some biblical principles of it. This has become up for a debate again because we used to say Christians don't smoke marijuana because it's against the law. What do you do now that it's not against the law? Can Christians smoke marijuana? I have Christian friends that says, yes. God's given us everything richly to enjoy. It's what the Bible says. I think you're missing the point here but let's just say that the Bible says nothing about alcohol use. There wasn't a single verse in the Bible that talks about alcohol. How do we make our decision based on that? Again, this can apply to uh, any other thing that the Bible doesn't expressly forbid, marijuana use, uh, uh, other types of drug use. What can we gather from, first of all, practically? First of all, we know that alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol as a depressant does not mean that you will get depressed if you drink alcohol. That's not what this means. It means it begins to slow down the processing functionality of your brain. That, that's a, a practical thing. This is not a biblical thing. This is what science tells us. That alcohol begins to affect a 100 different receptors in your brain and the way that your brain begins to process things, the way that your brain uh, processes uh, memories, and thoughts and judgments that you have. Reaction times are slowed down as these things are depressed. And again, we don't have time to to jump into what that does to our mental health as well, but it's a a depression. Next, alcohol impairs our judgment. Again, this is scientific stuff. This is not my opinion. Uh, This is not biblical. This is backed by uh, literally hundreds of scientific studies Uh, One of those, uh, a researcher at the University of Missouri, Bruce Bartholomew, said it's not as though people do drunken things because they're not aware of their behavior, but rather they seem to be less bothered by the implications or consequences of their behavior than they normally would be. This one particular study found that people, when they get drunk, don't do stupid things because they've drunk. They do stupid things because it has impaired their judgment. They don't care about the consequences any longer. They're not concerned about their own inhibitions any longer. I read multiple studies that talked about the link between domestic violence and alcohol. Let me just tell you, they, it, they struggle because they say there's not a direct link behind that, but they do find that when people who are prone to domestic violence have alcohol mixed with it, the likelihood of abuse goes up through the roof. And so it's not so much that alcohol brings out the worst in us. Have you ever met somebody like that and said, oh man, alcohol just brings out the worst in me? Actually, the worst was already in you. It just impaired your judgment to allow you to think that that was appropriate behavior. And so alcohol impairs our judgment. Next, alcohol lowers our inhibitions. All of us know someone who gets a couple of drinks of liquid courage and then begins to do stupid things, begins to act foolishly, uh, whether it's uh, starting an argument or starting a fight or uh, doing things that they wouldn't normally do because alcohol has lowered their inhibitions. Next, alcohol is addictive, I would, I'm not going to say that everyone who drinks alcohol will become addicted to alcohol. I'm not going to say that at all. I'm not saying because you have a glass of wine with dinner, you are addicted to alcohol, that you're an alcoholic. I'm saying it is scientifically proven that it is addictive. More than 65 million Americans report to binge drinking in the past month. That's 25% of the U.S. population admits in the last month they have gone on a binge with alcohol. One in four. One in eight Americans now or 12% of the US now meets the diagnostic criteria for alcohol use disorder, according to this particular study. It proves to be addictive. Certain people are more prone to addictive behavior, I'll definitely give you that. Uh, for me personally, I know that I have an addictive personality, no doubt about it. Um, if I find something I like, I continue to do it until uh, it loses its, uh, its luster. I had a, a guy one time that I was in the Navy with, he says, oh, you should totally have a beer with us that I don't drink. And he says, you should totally do it. You'll love it. I believe that statement well. Uh, I believe that I'll love it, and it will completely and totally ruin my life. I have a family member very close to me that began to drink a glass of wine with his, his meal when he would have uh, Italian food or something like that and, and would begin to do research on what uh, types of wines paired with different types of, of, uh, of foods. But then he found that just having a glass of wine at dinner didn't produce the effect that he wanted anymore. And then this family member of mine began to buy a fifth of vodka every single day and put it in his freezer because it was one thing that he could drink that nobody could smell on him. And he would drink every single night until he blacked out for a period of about four years, every single night. Now, you're saying that everybody who drinks wine with their meal is gonna be a blackout alcoholic. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it has the potential to. And friend, why would Christians want to walk down a path that could possibly be destructive that could possibly damage my life and the life of others? Possibly damage my life and ruin my Christian testimony? I don't think it's wise. Continued alcohol use also destroys the body. In your notes, there are are several short-term and long-term risks to alcohol use. Short-term risks include injuries such as motor vehicle crashes, falling, uh, falls, drownings, burns, violence, including homicide, suicide, sexual assault, intimate partner violence, alcohol poisoning, and medical emergency that results from high alcohol levels. Risky sexual behavior, including unprotected sex or sex with multiple partners. These behaviors can result in unintended pregnancy or sexually transmitted diseases, including alcohol, miscarriage, and stillbirth, or fetal alcohol syndrome uh, disorder among pregnant women. Long-term risks include high, pressure, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, liver disease, digestive problems, cancer of the breast, mouth, throat, esophagus, liver, colon, learning and memory problems, including dementia and poor school performance, mental health problems, including depression and anxiety, social problems, including loss, productivity, family problems, and unemployment, alcohol dependence or alcoholism, long-term effects. Oh, did you get this out of some Christian magazine? No, this is from the Center of Disease Control's website. This is what our government has to say about alcohol. So again, I struggle when Christians tell me of the redeeming characteristics of alcohol, when I believe every person under the sun recognizes, if we're being honest, alcohol is incredibly destructive. And you might say, well, alcohol's not destructive in my life. I know when to quit. I know, I know when to, to, to stop. I think every single person that's ever met an alcoholic in their entire life, the alcoholic would tell you, I know when to stop. I can hold my alcohol. I don't need anybody to tell me when to stop. And again, I'm not saying that every person who drinks is an alcoholic. I'm saying you have the capability to go there. But Christian, please don't extol to me the redeeming qualities of alcohol. I don't believe it holds water uh, biblically or even practically. This next one, I believe, is probably one of the greatest kept secrets in all of America. And it's a secret, not because somebody's keeping a secret, because we choose to turn a blind eye to it. Alcohol use results in death. an estimated 88,000 people every single day die from alcohol-related causes. It makes alcohol the third leading preventable cause of death in the United States, the first being tobacco use and the second, second, poor diet and physical inactivity. Do you know tobacco use is the number one preventable cause of death in America? Can you think of another product that we would sell that 50% of the people that use this product will die from using this product that we would still continue to sell? If you drink Mountain Dew, you have a 50% chance of dying if you drink Mountain Dew. Well, I'm just gonna give it a shot and see what happens. Hopefully it's not me. Who'd all look at that and go, crazy. You drink Mountain Dew, you're probably gonna die. If you don't die, your, your spouse will die as a result of it. We would pull it off the shelves immediately, but why do we continue to sell poison to people? knowing that it will kill them. You know why? Because there's far too much money wrapped up in it. I grew up in Kentucky. You know what the number one cash crop in Kentucky? is tobacco. (laughs) You know what the second uh, uh, produced uh, thing that gets money there? Probably meth or marijuana. But see, you begin to take away uh, uh, tobacco out of the equation. You have all these tobacco farmers now that are out of work, that have all this equipment that they bought and the government subsidies that they have, and they can't work now. You have these... uh, um, Tobacco companies, who's their, their main product that they sell. So it's no wonder now that they're trying to get into e-cigarettes and things along those lines, and they're trying to uh, put their hands in other things because they know they're selling deaths. <clears throat> and again, we can say the same thing it goes with physical inactivity and a poor diet. I'm against that as well. But the third cause of preventable death in America, 88,000 people every single year will die as a result of alcohol use. We need to step up and recognize that. The main thing that seems to be on the news these days is mass suicide or mass shootings uh, in schools, in clubs, bars, workplaces, things along those lines. And please know this, one death is far too many, period. There's an answer and the answer is is the gospel, but there's gonna have to be a short-term solution to this as well. I don't have the answer to that. This is not a political talk. Don't ask me, I don't have the answers and I know our politicians don't have it either. But there has to be an answer Last year in, in America, 2018, there were 373 deaths due to mass shootings, 373. Unless you think that I have a flippant attitude towards this, because I certainly don't, one of those 373 was a cousin of mine. My first cousin in Kentucky, his son, <coughs> was shot at my high school that I went to in Kentucky. And I look at this and I say, one person is far too many, but and, and 80, uh, I'm sorry, 373, far too high. But in comparison, in 2017, 10,874 people dry, died in drunk driving crashes. You're know, take a look at the stats on that. It pales in comparison. While we sit in church today, two people will die from a drunk driver. Two. While we're sitting here. Why don't we have public outrage at this? If the statistics are so lopsided, if people are dying daily in the tens of thousands, why is there not outrage? Why is there not panic? Why do we not have people that are, are more concerned about this? I'm going to tell you this. It's because we have become comfortable with alcohol and there's far too much money to be made on it. So we'll have our mothers against drunk driving that the week of homecoming, they'll put out a crashed car in front of a high school and tell kids not to, to drink and drive. And we'll say that we've done our part. We'll have athletes who uh, get caught beating their girlfriend because they got drunk come and make commercials on why alcohol use is bad and things like that. And then we'll absolve our guilt and we'll move on forgetting the people who have died. Friend, we we cannot allow this to continue and say that alcohol use is okay. Alcohol, uh, drunk driving fatalities occult, uh, account for 29% of all fatal deaths in automobiles. So if we cut out drunk driving, we could save a third of the people who died in car accidents last year. I didn't get a chance because the the state doesn't make it available how many people died in in Hawaii last year as a result of drunk driving. But just pedestrian deaths were off the charts last year. And I can't help but believe it probably has something to do with alcohol somewhere along the way. Again, I can't prove that. And again, if you want to say that I don't have anything to back it up, I'll tell you I don't have anything to back it up. But I'm telling you this, there's not a redeeming characteristic that comes from that. Every single day, today, 800 people will die as a result of, uh, I'm sorry, 800 people will be injured in a drunk driving crash, and today, 30 people will die because of drunk driving, 100% preventable. Why are we so cold to statistics like this? But again, if a, a, a workplace gets shot up, we begin to talk about gun control and how people shouldn't own guns and how we should take things away and we should be like uh, New Zealand did and, and things along those lines. But we want to turn a blind eye to drunk driving because it hits a little bit too close to home for some of us. 57% of people, in fa- of, uh, 57% of fatally injured drivers in the United States had alcohol or other drugs in their system at the time of the crash. 57% of people died, died in, in vehicle crashes as a driver. January 28th, 2019, this year, not two blocks from here, was a fatal crash that took place. One of the men in our church was there 30 seconds after a drunk driver plowed through an intersection and killed three people and sent seven to the hospital. One of the men of our church was there 30 seconds within it happening. He said, Pastor, I was going for a run at Alamona Beach Park. My son Thatcher had just come back from a run at Alamona Beach Park 30 minutes before that accident happened. This man came, he called me on the phone and panicked. He said, Pastor, can I come see you right now? I said, sure he comes. He's just bawling. He said, Pastor, I've never seen anything like it in my life. He said, I was going for a run at Alamona Beach Park. I hear this massive crash. And he goes, and I ran to see what it was. And he said, I went. He said, there was somebody out in the intersection. He said their brains were hanging out in the sidewalk and somebody was trying to perform chest compressions on them and I thought that person's already gone. He said, I saw somebody's leg was separated from their body and was up on the sidewalk and their, their body was in the crosswalk. I'm not trying to be gruesome for the fact of just being gruesome. I'm telling you the fact that alcohol destroys, destroys lives snuffed out like that in a split second because of what? a drunk driver. And it wasn't like it was a Friday night at two o'clock in the morning this happened. No, it happened at five o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. Again, we have to step back and be honest with the devastating effects of of alcohol on our society. This is just talking practically. Alcohol use destroys the family. More than 10% of kids in the U.S., one in 10 lives with a parent who's an alcoholic. The World Health Organization estimates that roughly 55% of domestic abuse perpetrators were drinking prior to the assault. Again, I'm, I'm just being honest. Find the person who lost their family member to a drunk driver and tell them about the redeeming alcohol uh, effects of alcohol and how good it is for Christians to be able to have a beer or two. Find the kid who is sexually molested as a child because their dad came home drunk and tell them about how great alcohol is for Christians and how it's a gift from God tell the woman who was sexually assaulted by a man who's drunk who she trusted about how great alcohol is and how it's a gift from God for Christians to enjoy it just doesn't hold water practically we cannot defend it alcohol use hurts the church Christians are not immune from the effects of alcohol just because you're here today doesn't mean that you're not struggling In 2016, megachurch pastor Perry Noble was fired from his church after 16 years. The church that he founded in South Carolina, it was a massive church, I think six different locations, 15,000 members, fired from his church because of alcohol abuse. Friend, that didn't just hurt him, it didn't hurt his congregation, it hurt the cause of Christ. And those who would mock and make fun of the church look and they go, Look at this, pastors, Christians, they're just a bunch of drunks like us, too. It hurts the church. In 2016, Darren Patrick was fired from his church, the Journey Church in St. Louis, after 14 years of a historical pattern of sin. His church was known for having a brews and and Bible study get together, where guys would get together and study the Bible and drink beer uh, together and talk about brewing and things along those lines. You look at that, and, and and most Christians would just shake their heads, like a church encourages alcohol use. It happened, and he lost his church. Popular author Max Lucado uh, confessed his dependence upon alcohol several years ago. He wrote an article about how he he thought it was okay to drink a beer after he'd been working out in the yard or a beer with his pizza and stuff like that, but he found that one beer wasn't enough and he needed a beer every single day. He got to the point where he was drinking in private so that no one would know, and he realized that he had a problem. In 2014, Episcopal Bishop Heather Cook. Now, we would look at this and say, first of all, she's not a pastor because uh, she doesn't fit the biblical qualifications of being a pastor. Second of all, it's an Episcopal church, and I'm not sure what their doctrinal statement looks like, but historically, Episcopals have not been biblically faithful Christians, as we might say, known for Orthodox Christianity. She killed a cyclist while driving under the influence, a, a, a husband and a father with two small children, hit and killed him, and then ran from the scene and then came back. And guess what? Again, we would look at this, this person and say, we don't agree with the biblical qualifications of the pastor the same way that this church would. We definitely are not on the same page with the Episcopal church as far as what we believe about the, about the Bible and the sufficiency of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection on the cross for us. But an unsaved person looks and goes, Ha, ah, look, another Christian pastor shows up to be a fake and a fraud. And you know what? That hurts the church. Hey, every time... A purported religious leader fails, it hurts the church. So, again, the redeeming qualities of alcohol, the list is very, very short. The harmful list, very long. Now, again, let's get back to the Bible because that's really what it's about. I think, again, if the Bible didn't say a word about alcohol use, we could look at society around us and say, probably not a positive thing for Christians. I don't know that we could portray Alcohol use in a positive light as a Christian based on everything that even the world would tell us about alcohol. But at the end of the day, we have to look at what the Bible says. I'm gonna give you seven biblical principles here that will help us determine what the Bible has to say about alcohol use or any other thing that's not spoken to specifically, explicitly in the Bible. First of all, who or what is associated with alcohol use? If we're called to be distinctive Christians and live a distinctly different life, What is alcohol use associated with? Is it associated with solid Christian families that love Jesus and wanna serve him? Or is it more associated with a worldly lifestyle? You got up this morning, you got somewhat dressed up and cleaned up, you grabbed your Bible, you came to church on a Sunday morning. Why? Because that's a distinctively Christian thing to do. Your neighbor saw you pulling out of the driveway with your Bible in your hand, getting the kids in the car at 9.45 to be at church by 10. Most folks would say they're probably headed to church. Just about every Sunday afternoon, if we go out to lunch together as a family, somebody will say, hey, did you guys just come from church? Why? Because it's a distinctly Christian kind of thing to do on a Sunday. So we have to look at our lives and say, is this a distinctively Christian thing or does it associate me with the world? And again, we've given you Bible verses. We don't have time to talk through all these this morning, but take time, look them up, study it out for yourself. But is it who or what's associated with this? Next, this is really important, Romans 14. Would drinking alcohol cause another Christian to fall into sin? Romans chapter 14 talks about living a life uh, and avoiding a life that would cause your brother to fall into sin. The word that he uses here is to stumble. It doesn't mean to get tripped up or to offend your brother. It doesn't mean to make him mad. It means to cause him to sin. If I decide that it's okay for me to have a couple of beers while I'm grilling burgers on the weekend, would that cause Joey to sin? Maybe Joey, two beers isn't enough for him. He needs six. Maybe Sam over here is in recovery. Nobody knew it. And Sam sees me drinking a beer and goes, well, I guess it's okay for Christians to drink beer. My pastor does. And so he begins to protect alcohol. Would that cause him to sin? If so, the Bible says I should avoid that. I don't wanna do any activity that would cause another Christian to sin. Next, could drinking alcohol become habit forming for me? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, I'm not gonna be brought under the power of anything. I'm not gonna allow anything to have control over me. And could alcohol be controlling for me? Could it be habit forming? I wanna stop here for just a second, too, and say, uh, I've known people before who say, I can't do anything in the morning without a cup of coffee. I I greatly enjoy a cup of coffee, but let me help you with this. If you're brought under the power of coffee that you need it to function on a daily basis, you should step back and find out, out if something has power over your life. And you go, did he just preach against coffee? I didn't preach against coffee. I love coffee. But you know what? For me, myself, I love to have a cup of coffee in the morning. I love to have a cup of coffee in the evening, too. But I found myself actually taking periods of time where I don't drink coffee for a week or two just because I don't want it to become habit-forming in my life. I don't want anything to have power over me that I've got to have it. You know what I've got to have? I've got to have the Word of God. I've got to have the Spirit of God. I've got to have the presence of God. I've got to have those things. Anything else is going to take my focus off of what I really, really need. Next, is there any doubt in my mind that drinking alcohol is not sinful? Would having a beer or two cause me to think that maybe what I'm doing is wrong? Would it cause me to doubt the Bible says if you doubt, you shouldn't do it. The Bible says let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind that what he's doing is the right thing. And if I doubt, I should not partake. The Bible tells me that. It's funny, sometimes I see people, uh, you know, I've gone to people's houses before and now it's just to stop by and say, hey, and see how they're doing. I was in the neighborhood that I'd stop by. And I stopped by and they're sitting on their, their porch with another friend and they, uh, they see me coming and say, hey, pastor, what's up? And they slide something behind their lawn chair do you think that I thought you hid your Dr. Pepper? Do <laughs> you think that I th- thought you hid your Mountain Dew because you don't want to share it with me? Like, I just like, come on. But was there a doubt that what you're doing wasn't the right thing? And again, I don't want you, if you say I'm fully persuaded that what I'm doing is the right thing, I don't want you to otherwise take your Corona and go, pastor, what's up? Here's to you and drink it like that. In front of me. It's not a matter of that either. But the Bible says if if you have a doubt that what you're doing is not the right thing, you should should step back and avoid that. This is really important. Does drinking alcohol build me up as a Christian and give other people the right view of Jesus? This is the edification principle. The Bible says that all things should be done to the use of edifying. This should build me up and help me to be a better Christian. Does this particular activity build me up? If not, I should, should check myself. I don't know a single person that can make the argument that when I have a couple beers, I'm a better Christian. When I have a couple of beers, the word just really comes alive to me. Never heard that before. When I have a couple glasses of wine, I just feel compelled to share my faith with anybody that will listen. Hey, help, let me help you. That's probably not gonna encourage people to seek after the God that you want them to. But again, does this build me up and does this point Christ in a positive light? Next, is drinking alcohol the best of my decisions as a follower of Jesus Christ? Does drinking make me a better Christian? Is this the best of all my choices? Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. In other words, there might not be a chapter in a verse that says, I can't do this, but is this the best of the decisions that I have? And again, I think we can apply this to other areas of our lives too. This is not just an alcohol principle. Hey, the music that I listen to, does it make me a better Christian? Well, show me in the Bible where it says I can't listen to rock music. I can't show you that, but does it make you a better Christian? Again, uh, I, I had... had When I was living for myself, I made some poor decisions in my life and uh, I got in some tattoos and I I enjoyed tattoos. I enjoyed looking at other people's tattoos. I'm fascinated with art. I think it's awesome. But I have to ask myself, does having a tattoo make me a better Christian and does it build me up in my testimony as a Christian and does it point other people to Christ and make him look good or does it bring attention to me and make me feel good? And again, full disclosure, I haven't gotten a tattoo in over 20 years because I came to a biblical conviction that it's not best. Now, if you're sitting here with tattoos this morning, you go, great, now pastor's against tattoos. We're not about what we're against. We're about what we're for. I'm for making Jesus look good. Are you with me there? And anything that we would do that would detract from making Jesus look good, I'm against that and you should be too. So again, this is not a message. If you walk out of here, he's against alcohol. He's against rock music. He's against tattoos. We're, that's not us. We are for Jesus and everything that makes him look good. And if there's anything in my life that takes people away from Christ, and takes me away from Christ, or causes me to pull other people away from Christ, I'm against it, and you should be too as a Christian. Next, does drinking alcohol help me to stand out distinctively as a Christian? God makes things with distinction. He makes light and darkness. He makes male and female. He makes uh, good fruit and corrupt fruit. God makes things with distinction. Is drinking alcohol make me distinctively Christian, stand out as a Christian? Let me just tell you this. Gentlemen, if you go to work and you talk about how great your wife is and how much you love her and you don't curse and you don't drink alcohol, just know this. Everybody's gonna look like you have have three heads. Something's different about that, dude. I don't know what it is. That makes us distinct. You go to, to, to work, use foul language, run your wife down, make sexually inappropriate jokes about people of the opposite of sex. Just know this, you're just like everybody else. There's no distinction there. And so again, does this help me to stand out from the crowd and be distinctively Christian? Bottom line, we gotta ask ourselves, first of all, what are the positive, redeeming qualities of alcohol? This is, this is the bottom line. What's the positive trade-off here? And when I talk to Christians, and I say, tell me the positive, redeeming qualities of alcohol that cause you to want to drink. I like it. It makes me feel good. Okay. That is indefensible based on Scripture. And again, if you see differently in uh, scriptural interpretation than I do, I'm not mad at you, I'm not against you. I just wanna be very clear with what I believe the Bible says and my interpretation of. If you come to a different interpretation, I'm 100% for you as long as you choose to follow Jesus and make him look good. I want you to know that I'm for you. I'll disagree with you, but we can just agree to disagree. And please don't leave huikala because we're against alcohol. For heaven's sakes. This is two messages that I've preached out of 528 at huikala. Two. So this is not, not the totality of who we are. And if you're a first-time guest, first of all, I'm glad you're here today and you, can't, you came for a humdinger, let me just tell you that. <laughs> What's the positive redeeming qualities? I really wanna hear it. I can give you a 100 of negative, hurtful things about alcohol. I can't, I can't add to this list. And I'd love to hear it from you if you really have some. Next is drinking alcohol, the wisest of my choices. Again, the context of this passage is walking in wisdom is this really wise for Christians to get into? Okay, there's not a chapter and a verse that says you can't drink alcohol, but is this wise for Christians to get into? Is it wise for Christians to smoke weed? I don't think so. I think that's scripturally indefensible as well. It's not a matter of, don't tell me I can't do it. I'm not telling you you can't. I'm telling you, asking you, is it wise? And if you're a Christian, you should desire to walk in wisdom. Next, that tells us, leads us nextly to, we're commanded to walk in wisdom. It's a biblical commandment. And if you wanna walk foolishly in opposition to biblical wisdom, the Bible is replete of examples on how your life will turn out. It's the book of Proverbs, through and through. You find the, the, the person who hears wisdom and chooses to go their own way, the Bible's clear how that winds up, and it's not good. Next, we're commanded to live soberly. And the word soberly means in right mind with full clarity of thought. And if I'm commanded to live soberly, then that doesn't mean just don't live, be drunk. It don't, means don't allow other things to cloud your judgment. And that walking soberly and thinking soberly is not just speaking in regards to alcohol, though it's certainly an application. It means I'm not gonna allow other things in the world to cloud my vision. I think for Christians, the question should not be, can I drink alcohol? It's should I drink alcohol? Well, show me in the Bible where I can't. Honestly, there's not a single verse I can point to that says that you can't. I believe, again, the totality of Scripture and practical wisdom would tell us just not a good idea for Christians. Well, then should I drink alcohol? Why would you want to? That's the question that I really wanna know. I've sat across the table from far too many guys whose marriages are struggling because of alcohol. I've never sat across from another couple who tells me the positive redeeming effects that alcohol has on their marriage. I've never heard it before. I've never heard kids who say, I'm so glad my dad drinks beer because he's so much more patient when he does. I've never heard that before. I've heard kids cry because dad's drunk again. Heard that. I'm gonna ask uh, Alex Petak to come, if you would, at this time. Alex has an incredible story. The first time I heard it, I thought to myself, I wish more people could hear Alex's story. And so I've asked him today just to take uh, three minutes. So Alex, come on up, if you would. Uh, take about three minutes or so and just share uh, his brief story of uh, his interaction with alcohol, uh, and it was an encouragement to me, I hope it is to you as well. Good morning.
1: Thank you, Pastor. I'm going to share with you a very personal story of mine, um, hopefully it can help someone out there. When Pastor Anthony told my wife and I that he was going to talk about alcohol in the Bible, uh, we got really excited because alcohol had a huge impact in my life. Um, it was actually a, a life and death situation for me. There was no middle ground. I tried the middle ground for many years, and it wasn't working. I, I hurt a lot of people that I loved. I destroyed um, time I had with people I loved, and um, it took a lot from me. Um, so I took my first drink when I was 14 years old. I remember the feeling I had. It was a feeling of euphoria. It felt amazing. It was something I never felt in my whole life. Um, All my worries went away. I was having a good time, and um, life was good. Uh, A couple years later, I graduated from high school. Um, I enlisted in the United States Air Force, and they sent me to Germany. The first thing out of my mind was uh, the drinking age in Germany was only 18, so I was very, very excited. I I flew over to Germany, and that's when my drinking took off. I drank excessively, and it was kind of I surrounded myself with with um, people who like to drink. It was kind of a culture in the military and I partied a lot and it seemed like the more you drank, the tougher you were and uh, the better worker you were. so I drank excessively and it really it really took a hold of me. Um, it's like a trap i I got trapped in it. The alcohol, um, I didn't think anything was wrong. And I kept drinking and drinking, but in reality, my whole world was crumbling around me. Everything I knew was just falling apart. And um, like Pastor said, it, I, I didn't see anything wrong with it and it, it, it really hurt. My, reala- my relationships became toxic. Um, I was financially irresponsible and my health really, really declined. I moved from place to place, I spent several years moving from island to island, place to place. Um, I thought everyone, everything around me was the problem. I thought that you were the problem, I thought the beach was the problem, I thought my family was the problem, so I just, I just moved. I spent about eight years moving from place to place, and um, until I came here to Oahu and I found myself all alone. And that was a couple of years ago, about well three, three years ago, I found myself all alone. And that's when I hit rock bottom, just drinking every day and uh, just feeling miserable, feeling alone. And then God put a beautiful woman in my in my life. It was my my wife, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, I met her, and um, I thought there was something special about her. I was a complete disaster. I was a mess, so I tried to put on a front for two weeks. I, you know, I tried my best to, to look my best, to act my best, to try to hide my problem. And um, I did a good job for two weeks. She didn't, she didn't, she didn't catch on to me. Um, but after two weeks, she found me out and uh, she said, I think you have a problem. I knew I had a problem, but I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't, I was trapped. I didn't know, I, didn't know, I didn't know what to do about it. I was completely defeated. Alcohol brought me to my knees, literally brought me to my knees. I was a slave to alcohol and there was nothing I could do about it and we both realized that it was humanly impossible for me to get better. Um, We tried everything. We tried drinking uh, only Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. We tried drinking just on the weekends. We tried drinking just at night. We tried drinking just in the morning. We tried taking trips. We tried not taking trips. um, I gave her my money and I told her only give me two drinks at the bar and uh none of it worked absolutely nothing worked and um i hurt her a lot in the process it was a it was a very rough process um i really wanted to stop but i couldn't one night she was at her wits end she didn't know what to do we didn't know what to do and she fell to her knees and she just prayed and it was something she hasn't done in years but she, she knew nothing, she didn't know what else to do. Uh, she prayed and immediately after that, it's kind of funny, someone, someone called and reached out to her and offered prayer and she prayed with this person for three hours. I didn't realize this till after the fact, but she prayed for me for three hours. And um, right after that, I became willing to at least ask for help or be willing to get help. And we were led to a spiritual program of recovery and in that spiritual program of recovery, they emphasized finding a higher power. <laughs> this, was ex- this was really hard for me, because I, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know anything about church. I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about praying. Um, when I was around people who, who talked about God, I felt uh, embarrassed, because I didn't know anything. At this point, we met some uh, members from church, and they, they gave us a hui kala a tract. And we took that tract, and uh, we came to church. And this is where I developed um, my relationship with God. This is where I learned about God. This is where I learned how to pray. Um, I got saved here on Easter. And after I got saved, uh, we got premarital counseling with pastor. We got married and we got baptized, and um, we started really getting into the Bible and learning what the principles say in the Bible and what God says about everything. And um, I especially like it because it gives a practical view, and it gives practical information for everyday use. Uh, my favorite is the the proverbs. You know, we just got finished reading all thirty all 30, 31 proverbs, and <laughs> um, I had a tough time with the Bible because. I have a tough time reading it. I'm a beginner, so it was really tough for me to read the Bible. So Pastor Anthony gave me a study Bible, and um, we just fell in love with it. We would read a little bit about it, and then I'd read what I understood, and then we'd go back to it, and I'd study it more, and then we'd we'd read some more, and um, we loved it. And one of the most important and um, something that we're extremely grateful for is when we came to church, Brandon and Natsumi. Um, came up to us and helped us and they guided us through the Bible and showed us where everything was, you know, how to read it, where to go, um, what it says, and uh, for that we're extremely grateful. Uh, Thanks for, um, thanks to applying God's principles in the Bible, I found new hope and freedom and happiness. Um, I'm grateful for what God has done in our lives and for our church family. I just want to thank everyone for the opportunity uh, to share my story. Um, Something that I always remember that I like to share is God's always watching over us. He's always watching over our prayers um, and ready to help us. So when we're ready to ask for help, he's always there. As long as we're willing to follow him. Thank you.
0: Awesome stuff. Uh, Three quick principles and we're done. Thanks for your patience today. I know we spent a little bit longer than we normally would, but uh, I believe this is super important. Three final thoughts. I shared these with our men at our Men's uh, Leadership Weekend. Every decision we need to make, first of all, we need to think about the effect of your choices and actions on other people. No person is an island. Every single person's life touches another person's life, and I need to think of the actions that I take and the decisions that I make and how they affect other people. Also, parents, I want you to understand that what you see and enjoy casually, your kids will take to extremes. For example, I can sit down and play a game of 2K17 with my, uh, with my youngest son and play one game uh, and be done with it. He wants to play for the next 12 to 16 hours, right? Uh, he wants, I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get something to drink and he's still on the couch playing. Uh, because what I enjoy uh, in, in temperance, he takes to extremes. So remember, the decisions that I make always have effect on other people. Next, I need to think about the effects of my choices and my actions on me personally, Again, Bible verses here for you in your notes, I don't have time to to talk about those today, but you need to think about every decision you make and how it affects you and the people around you. But this is super important, the one that most people never think of. I need to think about the effect of my actions and my choices on the kingdom of God. What does this do for the cause of Christ? The decisions that I make, the way that I live my life, how does this impact the kingdom? This is bigger than me. If I call myself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the decisions I make need to point other people to Christ. Every single decision that I make. <clears throat> At the end of the day, I want you to know this. If you disagree with the conclusion that we have on alcohol, I love you. I'm still for you. And we can still be friends. You can still attend church here. But just know this, this is kind of where we stand on it. It's where the Bible stands on it, I believe. And everything I've shared, not my opinion, not what I think or what our church should think, but I believe this is strictly from the Bible and from what practical wisdom tells us. I just want to challenge you with this final thought. Walk in wisdom. in wisdom. Every day, God, I wanna know what's the wise path that I wanna take that. Again, Alex said he found hope in the book of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom. No doubt he's gonna find hope there. The most important thing in the world. If you're here today and you do not know for sure when you die that heaven is your home. There's never been a time in your life where you put your faith and trust in Christ as Savior. You've never been saved or born again. Do not leave this church today until you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Also, if you're a guy or a gal that's here that's struggling with alcohol, I want you to know that there's hope for you. Fill out a connection card, drop it in. It'll be 100% confidential. I won't share it with another person on the planet, but I want to help you find the hope that you need. I'd be foolish to think that in a room this size with this many people, there's not at least one or two people that are struggling with alcohol and the power that it has over them. Know this, the Bible tells you that you are set free from your sin, Romans chapter six, and there's hope for you, and I want to help you find it. But let's walk in wisdom this week.